With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum. Restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. You can save an extra $10 when you spend 40 or more on a great selection of participating items. Just look for the signs and save at Baker's. Okay, guys, here we are live, uh, episode 49. I'm Jack Murphy. This is my co-host, Dave Park, over here. You see our guest tonight is John Mullins. Uh, John went from the rank of private first class to sergeant, or from private first class to sergeant first class, and then from lieutenant up to major, most of his career in special forces, where he served in Military Assistance Command Vietnam, Studies and Observations Group, which many of you have probably heard of. They were doing clandestine operations into Laos and Cambodia during the Vietnam conflict. He served in the Phoenix program, uh, one of the more, most controversial aspects of the Vietnam War, uh, which was targeting the communist shadow government in South Vietnam. Um, the New York Times, amongst others, uh, other critics of the war, have described it as a CIA-sponsored assassination program. We'll, we'll ask John what the real deal is. Uh, John also served in uh, uh, Blue Light, which is America's first counterterrorism unit. It was the predecessor to Delta Force. Um, most of them were Vietnam veterans. But these guys were like the real deal. They played the role of a stopgap until we had a, a full-time counterterrorism capability created. Um, John also went on to serve in numerous uh, deployments with special forces in Central and South America and the Middle East. And then after he retired from the military, he had uh, a, a real uh, second career as a security contractor. He worked in aviation security. He worked judicial protection down in Colombia, protecting judges um, from drug cartels. And then he also dabbled in the entertainment industry. And many of you probably remember John Mullins as I did my, in my initial introduction as a teenager was the Soldier of Fortune video game series where you actually play John Mullins. He's the protagonist of the video game that you play. It was a first person shooter game. And as we were, we were talking about a little bit before the show, I got Mr. Mullins killed numerous times in, uh, in bloody combat all across the world in this video game when I was a kid. So without further ado, John, thank you so much for spending some time with us tonight. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. Um, you know, maybe if you could start off telling us a little bit about you know, your upbringing and, and your initial entry into the military and how you found your way into special forces. Yeah, I was, uh, I was a farm boy in Southwest Oklahoma and uh, knew there wasn't much future there. And so I uh, graduated high school at 17 and that night I was in the 
Fort Hood, Texas, uh, going through basic training. Uh, basic and AIT, and, and we'd had uh, one of our hired hands back then was an old World War II paratrooper, and he filled my head all kinds of full of stories, and I thought, man, I want to do that. So I volunteered for Airborne and went to, was assigned to the 101st Airborne Division, which at that point was still Airborne and not Air Mobile. Mm -hmm. Went through jump school. But special, special Forces came along with a little bit strangely for me. I, uh, not 18 year old paratrooper, I could whip the world, of course. Uh, so get myself in a couple of fights and they, then I would have to report to the company first sergeant, a fellow named Charlie Waters, master sergeant. And Charlie had been a Marine on Guadalcanal and uh, he had been a ranger in World War, in uh, Korea. And now he was uh, my, my, my first sergeant. First time we did that, he, uh, he, I reported to him uh, and he uh, said, you want to come to commander's punishment or you want mine? So I knew, even stupid as I was at that time, <laughs> I knew that the company commander's punishment would be in Article 15. I didn't want that. So I said, I'll take yours first, Sergeant. He said, close the door. <laughs> and I thought, oh, <laughs> this is going to hurt. <laughs> and it did. Uh, to, to his credit, he did not, uh, he didn't just stand me at attention and beat the shit out of me. He, uh, he I don't think I ever laid a finger on him, though. I think he only got the only reason he stopped beating on me is he got tired. So uh, he told me to go out and soldier for him. And I did for about a month. And then I was back in front of the first sergeant. Uh, shortly thereafter, a guy came in and we were all down at the auditorium. And here came this guy in blouse boots and medals up to his shoulder and a totally unauthorized Green Beret. And he was giving us uh, the story of the special forces and how it was, what it did and so forth. And how we, if we volunteered, we'd go to Fort Bragg and we'd pick our, uh, due to our aptitude, we'd pick our specialty. So about basically the only thing I heard in that whole thing was I'll go to Fort Bragg and it would get me away from the first sergeant before he killed me. <laughs> so, uh, the way I went, they put me in commo school for about a day, but that diddy dod it just didn't do it for me. They, uh, but I kept hearing that uh, the rumor that if you were wanted to be a medic, they'd send you down to Fort Sam Houston, Texas to go through the first uh, 16 weeks of training. And they also said that there were lots of female soldiers down there. Well, I'm 18, you know, that, that was easy. That was an easy choice for me. Off I went to Fort Sam, uh, met one of those uh, young, beautiful young ladies, married her, still married to her. I uh, can't imagine why she stuck with me all these years, but she did. Uh, went through medic school, finished medic school, which had to be the hardest school I've ever been to in my life. Uh, we started with 40 students. We graduated 12. Wow. Uh, you had to know every tropical disease, uh, the symptoms, signs and symptoms, the treatment, uh, the palliative measures, uh, and the only thing you had 
was uh, was a Merck manual and uh, and an infectious diseases book. And, and, and what year was this, John? That was 1962. Okay. So it was really tailored for for. Uh, Vietnam or for Indochina for that for that area. No, it wasn't really tailored for Vietnam. It was tailored for the idea that special forces uh, people people get a lot of false impressions. Special forces, it's not a commando unit. Uh, it is a force multiplier. Uh, our mission uh, was to go behind enemy lines, organ recruit, organize, equip, and train, and lead into combat uh, other so the local people. Well, you can imagine if you if the balloon had ever gone actually gone up in uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, you weren't getting out of there. There weren't going to be any medevacs. There, you you had to treat everything there. Uh, so that was what that was what we were taught, and it came in very very well in Vietnam too, especially in the early years. So we didn't have all the medevac uh, stuff that uh, that they had once the American units came in. At my first tour there in 1963, we were uh, at, right up on the Cambodian border, and we uh, we had one airstrip, uh, but that was about it. You didn't have helicopters coming in. It, we, usually, it was an old Air America DC-3 that would come in if you needed anything. So it was the same thing. Uh, we treated every disease known to man. John, uh, we'll, I want to talk about your uh, your book series a little later, the Men of Valor series. I'm just curious, based on what you're telling me about your first deployment, have you ever read uh, Lloyd Little's book, uh, Parthian Shot? No, I don't think I have. No, he, he he was right up there on the border, and he wrote a, a novel novelized account of his time as a as a medic way up on the border on the Cambodian border early on in the war. I just thought it was a fascinating book. I was interested. In. Well, but I'd, I'd like to, maybe, you know, you can tell us about your own firsthand experiences and, and what that was like. Yeah, it was uh, one of the things that we did that was very, very effective was we opened the doors to all the locals for treatment. Um, we do, we had a dispensary there in the camp once the camp had gotten built. Uh, and uh, we'd, one of us or both of us had a senior medic and myself and some trainee, Cambodian trainees. And we would, uh, we would treat anybody that came in and they came in with everything from, uh, from hangnail to, uh, to typhus. Um, then we'd also do outreach. We'd go to the villages and hold a mobile sick call uh, at, uh, out of the villages. The, while we were doing that, our intel sergeant would be working the lines and he would be gathering information and he'd just talking to them uh, normally and they'd be spilling the beans as to what the local VC were doing, where to find them. Uh, it's a great way to gather intel. And I, I mean, being upriver, I mean, it must have been interesting in Vietnam and what, what did you say, 1954? I mean, this is this is early on in the war before the Marines, before a big army gets oh, there. Oh, 63, yeah. 63. And, uh, and, and I mean, I, I, no offense to, to Vietnamese people, but I mean, that part of the world must have been like a backwater, like going, you know, 200 years back in time. Oh, uh, at least that. Uh, our biggest enemies were the, were the shamans, uh, the local healers. 
uh, and quite frankly, they had they had a point. In many cases, some of the local stuff was uh, wor worked pretty well. But of course, we with Western medicine, we were a little bit arrogant about it. Uh, and we did, looking back on it, we did none better to have cooperated with them. They, uh, the I, <laughs> one of the things that uh, that not many people think about. They, uh, before I got deployed, uh, they sent me to the dentist there in, uh, in Fort Bragg as uh, on-the-job training. And they, I'd learned how to extract teeth and to uh, fill teeth and uh, do basically everything a field dentist could do. I think I, in that six months, I probably pulled more rotten teeth than most dentists will ever see in their lives. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, things that we really take for granted in, in the Western world are, are major health issues uh, or very common in other parts. Oh, wasn't, I mean, leprosy was still around in that part of the oh, world. Oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah, very much so. Yeah, and it, it uh, malaria, of course, was rampant. Uh, it was uh, just expected that you would get sick, pretty sick during that six months at least once. Uh, right. For me, it was uh, was the worst case of diarrhea I've ever had in my life, sitting on one stool and puking into another one. <laughs> and at this point in the war, it really is a, a uh, unconventional warfare situation. Like th those big like set piece battles that we all associate the Vietnam War with, Hamburger Hill and, and, and so forth, like that didn't happen, that hadn't happened yet. Tet Offensive, oh, no. none of that had happened yet. No, not at all. There were no no American troops per se. There were no American units, I should say, other than a couple of aviation outfits. Uh, there no infantry, no artillery, no nothing. Uh, it was uh, it was strictly the locals. Our we uh, we recruited from the local people in that area since, and it was. A lot of the a lot of the Cambodians were fleeing Sihanouk. Uh, and in fact, there was a little revolution against him in those days. Uh, so they crossed over the border, and we uh, we recruited them and trained them and led them into combat. They were damn fine little soldiers. And do you think that you know the whole war could have been different if it remained a special forces war? That, that if, if they left you guys in there, do you think it was a mistake to bring in the conventional military? I think that they should have brought in the conventional military only to guard the cities, frankly. Um, the, yes, it should, have been a, it should have been a special operations war. Uh, it inflated and inflated and inflated and uh, everybody wanted a piece of the action. Uh, they, they got it. Yeah. So when you went there, when you were initially sent there, well, let's, I, I mean, I'd like to rewind if you don't mind real quick, because I think special forces training back then is very different than say what Jack went through. You said that your medical training was 16 weeks. Is that right? No, medical training was almost a year. Oh, okay. it was, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, 16 weeks down at Fort Sam Houston to get basic and advanced aid man courses and then the real hard work uh, right after that uh, we were put into hospitals uh, military hospitals throughout the state 
and we did ward work in those hospitals. Uh, did our time in emergency. Uh, we we uh, we worked basically everything there and learned a hell of a lot from the doctors to a certain extent, but a hell of a lot more from the nurses. Uh, and then uh, there was dog lab, which uh, uh, which separated the people uh, that, that could hack it and the people that couldn't. Uh, eight week course, uh, and it was uh, it was the most intense learning experience I've ever had. The so for people who may not know before, you know, in my day, the, the medics, I was a weapon sergeant, but the medics went through the medic course and they had the, the goat lab. Mm-hmm. Back in the old days, they had the dog lab. It started out as the dog lab. Yeah. And I, that must have been a little bit different because you know, as human beings, we're much closer to, we've been, we've been coexisting with dogs for hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, how, were there any of the students that got like over emotional and, and just couldn't handle that? No, it, it really didn't happen that way for us. It certainly didn't happen that way for me. I hated that damn dog. Uh, every time I'd go in there, he'd try to bite me, uh, which, you know, the way he was being treated, I don't blame him too much, but, uh, it, no, it, you, you separated it out. I mean, yeah, you can love animals and everything else, but we were being trained to treat human beings. Fascinating. And then now did all this happen, uh, prior to any other training that you did for special forces? Um, did, I mean, there yep. was, there was like a selection though for you, right? Or at that there time, was no selection in those days. No. Okay. no. And then, uh, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. So you did the medic course, and then and then what happened after that? Or then what? we went through the the rest of it: the light infantry tactics, uh, explosive demolitions, uh, you know, some communications work. Uh, we didn't get a lot of it because that was when they were really ramping up the teams in Vietnam. Uh, so it was less than a year of that training that I got before we deployed. So right now we're, you're looking between a year and a half and two years worth of training before you, before you deploy. Is that yeah. right? Okay. Um, and then when you did deploy, was it, were you going there just under the U.S. Army auspices or was it under the military uh, uh, assistance? No, it was, uh, it was combined study division, which was basically uh, the agency. Uh, they were running the the whole program. Uh, it was nominally we were military assistance uh, Vietnam, but we didn't report to any of them. So after that deployment, what well, we said, nineteen sixty three, um, what what happened next for you? I mean that the war is ramping up, but you've I, I imagine at this point you've decided you want to stay in the military. You want to stay in special forces. Yeah, uh, I certainly did. There was no question that at that point. That as a matter of fact, I had to extend my enlistment to to go to the to that first deployment. Um, got back and re-upped, and uh, we did uh, we did a little bit of training there at Fort Bragg. But I decided that uh, I wanted to I, w- I wanted to be an officer. So off I went, and uh, being Fort well I, before that. Uh, went through French language school out at uh, Monterey, six-month course there. 
uh, French because the French had been in Vietnam so, so long that, that practically all the Vietnamese spoke French. Uh, Vietnamese was a little tougher page to, to open. Huh. Uh, so I went there, then I got commissioned, uh, went through ranger school, uh, eight of the most horrible weeks of my life. I kept thinking, what the hell am I doing here? You know, I already know how to be miserable. <laughs> and that seemed to be the only thing that they were teaching me. Uh, but then went back to Fort Bragg and was assigned to the newly formed third special forces group. Um, yeah, the desk was 65 by then and the fifth had deployed en masse to, to Vietnam. Uh, so they were chinning up the third. Uh, it didn't last long because they were taking a bunch of casualties. So in 66, uh, they went on another team back to Vietnam, Central Highlands that time. We were up at a camp named Venton. It was in, the, in a valley up in, uh, up in the, the, uh, the highlands all the way around it. They could shoot down on us practically everywhere. Uh, we lived completely underground. The uh, CBs had come in there and built bunkers, concrete bunkers for us because we got mortared and rocketed virtually uh, every day. The only thing above ground was the uh, was the, the head. And that was always fun to be sitting there doing your business and hear plunk <laughs> and realize that that's, that's mortar coming in. Better, better, better worry about your wiping later. <laughs> I'm going to show a picture on screen here uh, that you had sent me, John. This is uh, what you're talking about, where you're living yep. underground. Yeah, that's it. That was my hooch. That's amazing. And how, how had the war changed um, from, you know, 63 to 66? Oh, it was a full-scale war by 66. Um, mm -hmm. We had the first cab in there. Uh, they had had their butts kicked. Uh, uh, they're in the eye drain. Uh, I mean, right. They, that, that was the, that was the you know from we were soldiers once, right? Yep, exactly. But what uh, what there's the next one that they really got involved in uh, big time was Operation Crazy Horse, and that was right up uh, the mountains around our camp. It uh, it kicked off when one of our recon uh, units went out and ambushed uh, some people coming in, and started carrying stuff back. And the first thing I see is a is a 4.2 mortar sight. Well, 4.2 didn't come in less than regimental size units, so we knew that there were there were lots of people up there in those hills. So we told the Cavs, uh, that's what they were supposed to do, come in and fight those guys, and they poo-pooed us. Basically said, uh, yeah, we've been through those mountains, there's no damn body up there, blah, blah, blah. They uh, said, but we'll send, a, we'll send a battalion out just so you guys will feel better. Uh, so they, uh, they did, they sent the battalion out, and they, then they put the mortar platoon uh, in a saddle in between two mountains there. There were all the mortarmen, no infantrymen at all, and several, uh, several uh, news, uh, newsmen there. Uh, the NVA assaulted that and killed every single one of them. Uh, it was, uh, you can read about it in SLA Marshall's uh, Battles in the Monsoon. Uh, 
So then it was a full-scale fight. Uh, the CAV was there and had a couple of Vietnamese divisions there. Uh, the Koreans were kicked in at one point. Uh, and then they said, uh, well, we think we've got them surrounded, but we need somebody to go in there and find out exactly where they are. So guess who? Uh, Special Forces, here we go again. What just happened? We hear you. Yeah, my I can't see you again, though. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, don't worry about it. I, um, But we... Um, we so we took a company of, I had Montyards at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, we took a company, there were four, four uh, of us, uh, four units that went out to seek out the, the, uh, the North Vietnamese. And we patrolled that thing day after day and found a lot of sign of them, but didn't, uh, didn't find any, any units until one day when uh, we uh, were, going up this mountain and my mountain yard uh, commander uh, said, oh, Trung Wee, oh, Buku VC. I said, let's go get them. Uh, one of the most stupid movements I think I've ever made. <laughs> so the next thing we know, we're, in, uh, we're fighting our way uphill against an entrenched enemy. Uh, we, the, we fought there for most of the day finally broke through their first line and uh, got, had a lot of my people killed and killed a lot of them. And I was roaming around the battlefield uh, trying, to, trying to avoid the sniper fire that was still coming from the hill up above us and the 12.7 the machine gun that uh, I got behind a big old banyan tree and it was knocking off bark on both sides. And I was thinking, you know, this is not gonna be a good day. Uh, got back, got, got uh, called the cab, of course, and they were sending, uh, they were shooting a hell of a lot of artillery and the fast movers came in and got a little too close and wounded some more people. But uh, it was, uh, it was a long, hard day. Hi, uh, John, can you see that picture I shared with the screen? No, uh, I can't. Okay, okay. Well, it's, a, it's the one where you're standing amongst some of the indigenous soldiers, and I, I don't know if they're South Vietnamese or, uh, or Montagnards, uh, where there's, there's the one guy who's taking a knee in front of you with a Thompson submachine gun. Yeah, that's, uh, that was our Cambodes, actually. Okay, those are Cambodes. Yep, I got it now. For some reason, okay. now I've got it back. Um. Yeah, isn't the guy that was with them there? The Air Force guy was an Air Force photographer that they sent out uh, to uh, to document what we were doing. Damn near blew my balls off one day when he was discharging a forty-five, and uh, it was right between my legs. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but so that now you it was your guys and your your indige force, uh, your partner force up against uh, essentially a regiment of North Vietnamese of NVA. Yep. Yeah, we were. I had um, one of my platoons, uh, uh, the, one of my sergeants, uh, Zane Osno, uh, was smart enough to send him around uh, to the flank to try to get around, to try to get around him that way. That's probably the only thing that saved us that day. Now he fought his way and we continued to fight our way up the mountain. They, uh, I was throwing uh, through grenades. Uh, that was the only. That was the only explosives we had. I was 
throwing grenades, ran out of them, started getting them from the mountain yards. Uh, and they, uh, they decided, oh, that American, he can throw them further than we can. So they're tossing me their grenades and I'm continuing to do that. But then it got good to them because they saw me pulling the pins on these things. And they figured, I guess, to shorten the process, they'd pull the pen too and then toss it to me. Oh, here I am scrambling for a live grenade. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Wow. Because a very high stress game of hot potato. <laughs> hey John, for can you give us a little bit of history on who the Mountain Yards are like where they come from and and why you guys were working with them yeah the monyards were totally different uh people than the vietnamese the vietnamese were basically han chinese uh who had come down there uh for years and you know centuries before the mountain monyards were indo-asian uh, they uh, they were more like uh, they were more Cambodians and the Thais uh, had a lot more uh, genetic resemblance to the Montagnards. Uh, they were a slash and burn uh, farm people. They'd go into an area, uh, burn out all the uh, grass, plant their rice and harvest it. And when the ground would uh, grow fallow, they'd move on and go someplace else. Uh, some of the bravest guys that I ever worked with, fantastic soldiers. Uh, funny as hell sometimes. <laughs> some of the Tossing live hand grenades at you, yeah. 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 And what was their relationship with the Vietnamese? Because they were, weren't they sort of the indigenous people of the area? Uh, did they, what kind of relationship did they have with the Vietnamese people? They hated each other's guts. Uh, the Vietnamese thought of them as savages. Uh, the Montagnards thought of them as usurpers. Uh, there, there were constant conflicts between them. Uh, there was a, in 65, there was an actual revolt in several of the camps where the Montagnards uh, had overthrown thrown and killed in some cases. The Vietnamese uh, that were supposed to be their commanders and uh, declared their independence. Uh, they formed the KKK. Which is uh, not not the KKK like like here, uh, but it was uh, it was an organization and full role uh, the front for the liberation of the Montagnard people, and uh, they faded back into the into the tall bush. 
Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. You can save an extra $10 when you spend 40 or more on a great selection of participating items. Just look for the signs and save at Baker's. And so when, what was America's interest in the Montagnards? Why, why were we working with them and why were they working with you? Because it was the only ones that we could actually depend on. Um, I pitied the guys, the special forces teams that were down in the Delta because there were no Montagnards down there. Uh, so you had a mixed batch of, uh, of soldiers uh, that you had got from various sects, uh, the Wahoo and uh, various the, others. The Hua Hao, the, the Buddhists. Um, the Montagnards uh, in three corps, uh, it was mostly Montagnards and two corps and I corps, it was all Montagnards. Uh, and that was the only people we could, uh, we could actually recruit from. The Vietnamese weren't about to do it. And they had been all, anybody of, uh, of soldiering age had already been snatched up by the army anyway. There was, were also the Nungs who were, the, were of Chinese heritage, but uh, totally different than, than the Vietnamese. Lived separate uh, part of uh, Saigon, Cholon, was almost uh, all uh, Nungs. Uh, and they were damn fine fighters too. Most of our Mike forces in three corps were uh, young soldiers. So by the, by the end of that deployment, what was your, your impression of, you know, how the war in Vietnam was shaping up and the direction it was going in? I was, I thought at the time that, uh, that we, I mean, it, we couldn't just say, screw it and come out. But, uh, but we're, our hands were tied in so many ways that uh, I didn't see the, it ending anytime soon. So, which is good because I liked war at that point. When you uh, say your hand, I'm sorry, when you say your hands were tied, are you talking about U.S. policy and what you were? U.S. policy, yeah. Can you, can you tell us some of the ways in which your hands were tied? Well, they, 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 this negotiation business was uh, was always bogus. The North Vietnamese had no intention of of ever uh, negotiating a a settlement, uh, and we it, there were certain areas that they wouldn't let us go into, uh, Cambodia and Laos, for instance. That's where the staging came from. They weren't all those North Vietnamese divisions weren't down in South Vietnam. They were living the high life over across the border. And until we until SOG cranked up, they mostly got away with it. Um, then of course the various bombing halts and all the rest of it, bring them to the negotiating table, blah blah blah. Vietnamese had one strategy and one strategy only send as many Americans home in body bags as you can. And sooner or later, the American people will say that's enough. And it worked. 
people don't people don't read their history uh, after Okinawa and especially after after Iwo Jima. There was a very strong anti-war effort in the United States. Uh, people were saying, "Why the hell would would we kill another half a million soldiers just to invade Japan?" Uh, that was uh, that, with all the the wonderful things you hear about the greatest generation. That was very active at the time. If it had not been for the atomic bomb, we probably wouldn't have. Did you know, a little unknown fact, that the Purple Hearts that people are still getting now, the actual medal, was bought and paid for in 1945? Because they were anticipating Japan. They those were. The the ones that they were they were expecting that many casualties wow yeah that there is a whole interesting history there and then that, and it also leads into korea because the japanese capitulated faster than the army expected and there's a whole other story there about how north korea was born but um i think that kind of also leads us into um, your next deployment to Vietnam, it was what you had mentioned, was Studies and Observations Group. And I was wondering if maybe you can describe to us, you know, the innocuously named Studies and Observations <laughs> Group and what that was and how you found your way into it as a Special Forces officer. It, uh, it, it had been started in 1965, I believe, with uh, one, of the, one of the more colorful characters uh, that has ever been in the United States Army, a fellow major at that time named Lowry Thorny. Uh, he had changed his name to Larry Thorny. Uh, but Lowry had been in the uh, ski school uh, up in Finland when the Russians invaded in World War II came out with the Mannerheim Cross twice. Uh, the Russians captured him after the war, threw him in prison, he escaped. Uh, he, they caught him, threw him in prison again, he escaped, <laughs> made his way to Germany, uh, fought with, uh, with the Waffen SS against the Russians. Uh, after the war, of course, uh, it, it, that wasn't, uh, wasn't regarded very well. So he went to South America for a while until the heat died down and then came up and joined the American army. But he was, uh, he was perfect for, for the mission. I mean, this guy had been a gorilla all his life. Was, uh, was Larry a Lajak soldier? I've heard conflicting things about that. Was he a Lajak? Yes, he was. He was. Yeah. Okay. Definitely, uh, and he was one of the first casualties we had in SOG. Uh, the, the first, uh, as a matter of fact, the first across-border mission in the Laos. Uh, they flew their helicopter into a mountain. I was expected to see him walking out of there. <laughs> you didn't think that guy. But you you knew close. Larry personally, John? Yes, I did. Well, what what kind well, of? I mean, I knew, he, I knew him personally. Uh, he was a major. I was a I was a lieutenant. You know, we weren't exactly buds. Right. Well, I mean, do you have any recollections or experiences about him that you can share? Because there's this this continued fascination with uh, with Larry, I think that, you know, he served under three flags. Um, and as you said, one of the most colorful people to have ever served in special forces. Yeah, he um, he would he hated the communists. Uh, that was his main. <laughs> yeah. Function in life, you know, the Russians, the, the bastards that had invaded his country, and uh, then he'd fought against them, 
in World War II, and now he just found a, found a new place to fight them. But uh, that uh, they found that it was feasible to run small reconnaissance patrols over there. Uh, and it, uh, so then they started ginning up. Uh, it didn't start as SOG per se. It started up as projects Omega, Sigma, uh, and of course, there was Delta, which was the in-country recon. Uh, SOG basically came later on when they consolidated everything in the Studies and Observations Group. They did that, uh, the Studies and Observation, because they didn't want it to be a special operations group. Uh, there'd be too many newsmen around sticking their noses up your butt. Yeah. Yeah. Always call something exactly what it's not, and people go, oh, that's fine. That, <laughs> yep. That sounds good. <laughs> Who wouldn't want studies done on Vietnam? That's sounds good. Yeah, yeah it's like uh, <laughs> like the uh, the Sephardic course. It, it's like the Special Forces Advanced Recon Tactic. Blah 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 blah. It, it's got like it, like nine <laughs> nine letters in this acronym. They just made it so bizarre and so complicated. Like nobody can. Oh, what the hell is that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're very how, good at that thing. How did you find yourself into into Maffy Sog, John? I uh, I had I'd been back to the states uh, for a short period of time. Uh, they uh, they always thought that you should get more uh, more uh, leavening in this man's army, so they sent me down to Fort Benning. Uh, and I had put in my the, the little deal that. You, you fell out uh, some of your non-military skills and I'd put in there that I was uh, had some gunsmithing skills. So they put me in Fort Benning and I became the original army instructor for the quick kill program. And I don't know if you've ever heard of quick kill. No. It's an instinctive shooting program that was brought uh, that was sold to the army by a world-class shotgun shooter. And it was, you know, our encounters in Vietnam were 20 feet. Mm -hmm. uh, you didn't worry too much about sight pictures uh, at that. You just needed to get it in the general area and get a get around downrange. Well, with this, uh, we we eliminated on the guns that uh, that we gave them. We started off with Daisy BB guns, took all the sights off of them, uh, and would stand next to the shooter and throw these little aluminum discs up in the air and they would have to engage that disc. Uh, and the positive reinforcement that they got from plinking that disc was just amazing to watch. And then we'd transfer, transmit over the of course to small targets uh, on the ground and then go from that uh, to uh, to actual using in M4, M16. But we'd, uh, we'd put a slat of wood across the top so they couldn't look through the sides. And then it was strictly instinctive shooting and worked very, very well. Uh, then uh, the army uh, sent the one of the uh, regiments from the 82nd over to Vietnam and that they pulled all the officers uh, in order to fill the rest of the uh, the rest of the slots that had been uh, that they needed to fill and so they uh, they sent me up to be a 
airborne officer in, in uh, Fort Bragg. My main takeaway from that was uh, that was uh, during the time of the Martin Luther King riots. So here I am on a gun jeep in my nation's capital, fully loaded and authorized to apply lethal force should it, uh, should it, should it be, be necessary. Wow. Uh, you know, I never thought that. that. Fly. I'm sorry. So you probably didn't expect that when you were enlisting. No, I did not. No, I most certainly did not. But uh, one funny story about it: uh, they billeted us in a in an empty uh, office building there. So I'm uh, I'm going through and checking uh, with my sergeants and uh, telling them what we were going to do the next day. And I get up to uh, about the fourth floor. And we have got everybody, every binocular we had in the company is focused on this building across the road. So when I walk in, everybody starts polishing the binoculars. Uh, okay, <laughs> yeah, tell me, tell me what you're really doing. And so they gave me a set of binoculars and pointed out a building across the road. And there were several girls over doing a strip tease for, for the boys. <laughs> So what, um, how, how long did, did that sort of rotation in DC last for you? A year. A year? Yeah. Yeah. And after that, I knew I didn't want any more part of the conventional army. So I volunteered to go back and uh, I, had, um, I, at the, uh, you had to go through Natrang at the headquarters there and all the admin and everything else. And there was this major, named Mark Ponzillo, and he and I had hit it off. And he said, John, you need to come with me. And he was going to SOG. So, ah, what the hell? I'll go, we'll go with you. So, away I went. And did you know what it was when you, when you were going? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I knew very well what it was. So, were, uh, were you up at uh, CCN and, and Contum? I was at all three of the FOBs at one really? time or another. Yeah, I was running something called the Borden Project. Uh, it was a, it was, we were putting people in and, and doing recon in not only uh, Laos and Cambodia, but North Vietnam before the bombing halt of 68. Uh, so we, depending on where we were putting them in, that's where we launched out of. Are you allowed to talk about, you know, what, what that entails? Because, I mean, I think we all know, and, and honestly, I don't, I have no idea what that project is. And I, I would like to think I'm somewhat well-read. I, I have absolutely no idea what that is. It was, uh, we were going into the, the prisoner war camps in South Vietnam and recruiting soldiers out of them. Uh, and changing, changing their point of view and then taking them back over across the border and who wow. better so you were uh, you were inserting double agents yeah mm -hmm. yeah That's we uh, we the the biggest recruitment uh, tool that we had we took them down to saigon they had been told uh, innumerable right, right. times that oh they're american oppressors they're so evil the people are suffering and Saigon was just the most bustling scene that you've ever seen there in 68. So they realized they'd been lied to all that time. Yeah. 
yeah. So that's, uh, I mean, that's just fascinating to me. And, and I mean, I, I imagine it must have been very um, a challenging assignment to first identify these guys in the POW camps. Then you got to flip them over to the American side, like you just described, and then actually insert them with a credible cover about where they've been while they were missing and what they were up to. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was quite involved. And we did have a couple who, you know, paid lip service to it and uh, was, and we expected that. And that mm -hmm. was, uh, that just went with the game. How did you cover your tracks then? Because if you, knowing that some of these guys might flip, were you worried that they would expose the program and, and put in jeopardy anybody else you sent up? No, because uh, we, uh, the ones that we, we could pretty well identify the ones that were, were going to flip. So um, we took precautions. Uh, their life expectancy wasn't very long. That's all right. I'm saying about that. <laughs> Removing the firing pin from their Kalashnikov uh, for starters. Um, uh, that's one of them. Uh, where was I? Uh, oh, oh, so I mean, I guess my my follow up to that would be, you know, did that turn out to be a good source of intelligence for studies and observations? Oh, indeed, indeed, it really, did. yeah, yeah. Uh, we we called in many a B fifty two strike uh, over over that one. So was and, that something that the recon teams, that the RTs, were involved in, or was that it was just a completely no, separate parallel no, program? They were totally separate. Interesting. Wow. It's always something new to learn. Yeah, that is amazing. <laughs> that, now, how did, obviously, these guys had to be given some sort of tradecraft, right, in order to communicate, in order, you know, just different types of things. Were, were you guys teaching them that? Did you have assets or, or partners that were teaching? Oh, yeah, them? we had partnerships with the Vietnamese. Uh, they, they're, uh, the Luc Long Doc, Doc Biet, the uh, Vietnamese Special Forces. And some of those guys were very, very good. Um, some of them weren't worth the powder and let it take them to hell. But uh, it was, uh, so, but we had the cream of the crop. And so then you had mentioned to me, again, something else I, I didn't know about you. You told me uh, yesterday when we spoke briefly that you were also a senior advisor in the Phoenix Project, your your final yep. deployment to Vietnam. And um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. It, it, totally separate from MACV SOG, um, the Phoenix Project was one of the more controversial programs that we ran in the world. It was very controversial, yeah. yeah. Um, it, um, it, I volunteered for it, frankly, because I was tired of killing snuffies. Uh, so some poor bastards jerked out of a rice paddy in North Vietnam, given a modicum of training, uh, weapon and told down there and kill the American imperialists. Uh, I wanted to take out the people who had sent the people out. And the Phoenix program was designed exactly for that. Uh, the, every province had uh, an infrastructure, a shadow government. Uh, those were the people who were pointing out targets. Uh, they were doing assassinations of anybody who, uh, who was cooperating with the Americans. So the, the guys then the Phoenix program were specifically targeted 
uh, and it took a hell of a lot of intel, as you can imagine. But once you started getting them, uh, getting someone talking, you'd be amazed at the stuff that they'll come up with. And one of the things was they were shit scared of the Phoenix guys. Um, they were, uh, they, they knew that their life expectancy was uh, balanced upon whether I said, uh, you know, this guy's useful or this guy's not useful. Uh, and we recruited the people uh, out of uh, out of people who had a grudge. Uh, mm -hmm. My Phoenix, uh, my Phoenix soldiers were the survivors of Tet 68. Their families had been marched out into the sand dunes and buried alive. The biggest thing, biggest problem I had was to keep them from killing these guys. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how many times I told them, "God going, damn going it, rogue, you can't yeah. get in intel off a dead man." Uh, they really wanted to kill them all. Yeah. Uh, so, I, no, go ahead, Dave. I was just going to ask, were you familiar with the Phoenix program? Did you volunteer for it? Were you recruited? In I volunteered for it, yeah. So you had, you know, in, over there, everybody knows everybody else at, at one point or another. And uh, I had a good friend who said, I'm going to Phoenix. And I said, well, hell, I'll go to Phoenix too. Uh, and uh, so we uh, we did some very good work there, and that was uh, until Senator J. William Fulbright stands up on the floor of the Senate and denounces it as an assassination program, uh, and they pulled every one of us out of the program, wow. uh, sent us back to the states, told us we could never go back to Vietnam. This was 1970, and it was uh, it, it it was just ridiculous uh, others as i said before we saved more lives than than got killed because we wanted information out of them but and once once the americans left that left the vietnamese to run a reign of terror which they did what do you think then, John, about the, the criticisms that have been made about the Phoenix program in subsequent years that, you know, they say you guys were a CIA sponsored, uh, you know, hit squad that you were assassinating civilians um, that is sort of this slash and burn operation? No, no, absolutely not. Uh, our, our records were meticulously checked by uh, the province, uh, Poik, the province officer in chief. And uh, he, uh, he was an old hand in this business. And you didn't lie to this guy. I mean, he knew everything. He was one of the most impressive men I ever knew. Uh, and he was he, South, uh, a South Vietnamese intelligence officer? No, it was an American. Oh, agency guy. Yeah, the point, uh, yeah, the park was, uh, was, uh, was American. Uh, this, is, this is a guy who had, uh, had fought all through South America, and he uh, he was a soldier's soldier, and he took to me for some reason or another. Uh, I think that the interesting thing about the the Phoenix program is also the many parallels between that and you know what today's generation of special operations soldiers has done and that you hear about the Joint Special Operations Task Force in Iraq and Afghanistan, the whole notion of um, high value target capture kill operations, that it all very much parallels 
the things that you're talking about, John, that, you know, you guys had provincial reconnaissance units, we had, um, you know, CTPTs and all, all these other kinds of, um, you know, similar acronyms almost, it's, it's like a, almost a direct mirror image of, you know, what we tried to do in Vietnam in some, in some regards. Yeah, it's, we had enough people hold over I think that taught uh, generations of special forces and some of the things that had worked and some of the things that didn't. Uh, and I, I believe that the success of uh, our special operations community now is based upon a lot of that. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more since I, uh, you don't have so many opportunities to talk to somebody who is intimately involved in it. Like, what was that process like for you guys as far as your um, your, your targeting cycle, um, you know, the, the cycle of operations about, you know, get, it sounds like it was an intelligence driven effort um, oh, to at least, yeah, try to pinpoint who the, the ringleaders were in the shadow government in South Vietnam. Uh, what was it? How did you go about that? And how did you, you know, begin removing the shadow government from the civilian population? Um, it was in the beginning, it was stuff that the Vietnamese, uh, the local Vietnamese had gathered, uh, the, whether they be police forces mm -hmm. or the, uh, and the, poli the police force uh, in some cases was quite good. Uh, and they knew who was doing what. Uh, they just couldn't get permission to move against them. We could. Uh, so we got a lot of intel that way. And then once we started rolling them up, they rolled up, they, they sang their hearts out. <laughs> At one point, with the, there was a North Vietnamese battalion that uh, came in from, uh, from Laos, and they were lost for two weeks. Uh, there were no more trail watchers. There were no, uh, no guides. Uh, they were, so I vectored in the 101st Airborne on them. That's amazing. So this shadow government that was in South Vietnam was not, I mean, it may have been like sort of like a mafia type thing or whatever, but they were working in the interest of the, the communists of the North Vietnamese. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. They, uh, a lot of them, a lot of them were, were, had been sent down for that purpose. And a lot of them were holdovers from, uh, from when Vietnam was partitioned. Uh, they were told, stay in place, uh, you, there will be a need for you. What do you think was your biggest, uh, you know, coup over there for you and your teammates as far as operational successes? Like, like there, was there a particularly big uh, VC network that you dismantled or something that really stands out in your mind? Yeah, the, uh, the entire shadow government of, uh, of Tuatan province. Uh, there were there were virtually nobody left when uh, that's why they gave me uh, gave me the next province up to, to do the same <laughs> do the same thing. No good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> uh, for anybody who's listening to this on the podcast instead of watching it on YouTube, I just want you to know that John just had quite a little smirk there when he was telling us about that. That I mean, you guys must have just totally wiped that out then, huh? I mean, yeah, we had people giving up, um, walking into uh, walking into to local police stations and saying, you know, I don't want to die. 
these guys, uh, they're, they're, they're out there and they, uh, they, they will get me sooner or later. But it, it reminds me of, you know, different programs and, and perhaps shut down for different reasons, but, you know, like uh, vil village stability operations in Afghanistan, once we kind of got it up and running and it started to have an impact, we shut it down. Yeah. The same thing. It sounds like the same thing happened with Phoenix. It did. Yeah, it did. It was, uh, it was a big mistake. But, you know, by 1970, that war was won. Uh, despite all the bullshit yeah. about it, uh, you know the the uh, street without joy that goes from basically from uh, Hui up to uh, Upper Kuangtri Province that uh, the, they talked about it was horrible ambushes, blah blah blah. I used to drive that jeep, drive that road in a jeep by myself. So what 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 do you think went wrong at that point in 1970? Uh, 70, well, two things went wrong. Um, the, the invasion of Cambodia. Laos was, was a mistake. No, Cambodia was a, was a good operation. Invasion of Laos was a mistake. Uh, it was, uh, it took away the cream of the Vietnamese army. And by that time, they were getting pretty good. Um, and after that, it was all downhill. And the Vietnam conflict, I mean, it's something that I think, you know, quite clearly stuck with you, John, um, as it did so many other guys who had served there so long and hard that, you know, you wrote, what, four, four or more novels about. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. The Vietnam conflict, uh, one of them being, you know, the Men of Valor series. And I'm sorry that I have not read them. I, I usually, Dave and I try to read the books of all the authors who come on here. And we're pretty good about it, uh, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back. And But you were kind of short notice, so I'm sorry that we haven't read your books. Could you tell us a little bit about, like, after your, your post-war experience, why you decided to write these books? It, it came a lot later. Um, mm -hmm. It was, and as much as anything else, it was catharsis. Uh, my first one started out, God, it was uh, way up around uh, 1990, uh, 1995. Uh, and I was driving and I saw a site that looked so much like that hillside that I told you about earlier with the, it was Johnson grass here, but it was elephant grass there. And the wind was making shapes out of it. And it just, it spellbound me there for a minute. I had to pull off the road. I, thought, <laughs> I would have probably had a wreck otherwise. And I jotted, uh, jotted down what I regarded as maybe a first chapter. And then I put it away thinking, oh, nobody's interested in this crap. So uh, later on in 2000, uh, went to the, uh, the big get together in Washington for, uh, it was our 50th anniversary of the Special Forces. And uh, we, uh, I met, um, a published author, Mark Barrent, who uh, had I knew from the Third Corps Mike Force, and I told him that you know it's a piece of shit, so forth and so on. He said, "John, you are no judge of your own writing. Take that 
and sent it up to this guy. And he gave me the address of an editor up in New York. Uh, so I said, oh, what the hell, what have I got to, what have I got to lose? So I sent it up to him and I get, get a call about a week later from Jim Morris I said, we want this. Where's the rest of it? I'm thinking, Jim Morris oh, called you. Now I've got to write the rest of it. <laughs> it, it was that Jim Morris. Yep. That yeah, Jim Morris. Jim's a friend of mine. Oh, is he? Yeah. Yeah. Jim's yeah, a great yeah. Guy. yeah. He is He's a really good guy. Uh, that's so funny. Jim was the one who told Jim had been had been wounded and uh, there in uh, 60, 66, uh, yeah, 66. And so they put him down in the Trang as the uh, awards and decorations officer uh, and uh, until his tour was up. And he buttonholed me there after as I was getting ready to leave Vietnam that time. And uh, I'd been put in for the Silver Star for that for that action. And he. uh, he said, John, you screwed up. Well, what do you mean, John? He said, you weren't wounded. If you'd have been wounded, you'd have gotten a DSC. <laughs> Let me- uh, mistake on my part, Jim. <laughs> I, got, uh, I got the picture you sent me of uh, being awarded the Silver Star here. So you just put that up on screen real quick. <laughs> a little younger then. Yeah, a little bit. About how but I can I can still I can still see you there, John. John, how old were you in this picture? Uh, twenty-eight. Wow. Yeah, Jim Morris is a good guy. He uh he lost one of, got one of his balls shot off by communists in Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. Um, we'll we'll have him on this show sometime. I I have no doubt. He is a he's a <laughs> fascinating guy. Oh, he has least. stories. Yeah. He, he yeah, yeah. he's a great storyteller. You know uh, who else told me? Uh, actually, told me you were a really good guy. Said you have some great stories. Is uh, Tilt Mayor? Oh, Tilt. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yep. We get yeah. together. Or try to get together every year out at uh, out at Las Vegas. Uh, we uh, drink entirely too much and tell tell war stories and hug <laughs> each other a lot. <laughs> uh, John, uh, yeah, Tilt's a terrific guy too. I, no, I, I love him, and he's he's another guy we'll have him on at some point. Um, so definitely, you know, check out the the Men of Valor series. Um, I was looking at them on Amazon. I, I want to read them now, and you know, hopefully, we can have you on again sometime, John, um, to talk about those. Um, but I want to talk about yeah, there your, are uh, there there are uh, if you go on go on Amazon, you can also find the other ten books I've written. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that too, because when I type in John F. Morris, what pops up is the Men of Valor series, or I'm sorry, John F. Mullins, the Men of Valor series pops up. I I didn't see your other books. Are they under a pen name or something? No, they're under my name, but you really have to search for them. Uh, And they're only, they're only online. What what are the what are the um what is the series name or the titles? Well, what I one of them is the Apache County series, uh, where I took one of the characters from the Men of Valor series, uh, who had run afoul of the army and left it and uh, went to work as a contractor. Imagine that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, brought him back to uh, brought him back to Oklahoma, uh, where they talked him into being the sheriff of a small county. Uh, in uh, southwest Oklahoma and dealing with all the problems uh, that you have there. There's a five, that's a five novel series now. All right, I'm looking forward to checking them out. Um, 
And, you know, on that note, I want to, well, before we move on to contracting and, and private security, I want to talk about your post-Vietnam career um, and finding your way into blue light. And there were some things you had laid on me, again, that I thought I was kind of well-read about on blue light. I, I sent you that whole article I wrote about them, but you were telling me some stuff I did not know at all. Uh, so I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about, you know, your SF career after Vietnam and, and finding your way into blue light. Yeah, I, uh, after Vietnam, since I couldn't go back, uh, I went through Russian language school and uh, then went off to Bad Tulf, uh, which oh, really? we, still had, uh, we still had the first uh, battalion of the 10th Special Forces Group in Bad Tulf in those years. Horrible assignment. Uh, really? Uh, eating, eating German food, uh, learning how to <laughs> ski. Uh, <clears throat> now, you can imagine, I'd just come out of Southeast Asia. Yeah, My yeah, blood yeah. was not exactly attenuated to the Alps. Uh, so it was a little bit of an adjustment period there. And I never stood on, Oklahoma was flat. You know, where was I going to ski? I'd never been on a ski in my life. So, but I damn well learned how to ski because that was going to be our way of getting in if the balloon ever did go up. So. What, was that called a uh, falling rain? Hmm. I think was falling rain the name of the program at that time. The the first of the tenth guys that it, it, you know if war popped off at the Soviet Union. They it didn't really have a have okay. a specific name that, that I know of anyway. But uh, they uh, they put me in at first as uh, as an area study officer. And I was there for a while, and then uh, they moved me over to command a company. And we did some interesting things. We did a lot of exercises with, uh, with the special forces, the special operations people from everything from, uh, from Norway down to, uh, at that time, since the Shah was still in, uh, Iran. Uh, we, we had them up there. We went down to Iran to cross the Dashti Kavir Desert, uh, which supposedly had never been crossed before. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but uh, that was miserable. Uh, the uh, and a uh, lot of a uh, lot of MTTs uh, all over the place. Uh, my language uh, came in handy. The French, in particular, came in handy. I worked a lot with French, and all the business of them being, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> dropping their rifles. Uh, it's bullshit. These guys were good. Yeah, uh, the 13th, uh, 13th uh, Parachute Regiment, uh, Marine Parachute Regiment of the, I worked with, 12th Parachutes de Marine. Uh, very good folks. But how, uh, you, how were you adjusting to this after having been, I mean, in Vietnam, in and out of Vietnam from 60, for seven years, basically, from 63 mm -hmm. to 70, and now you were you know, working in a, a more of a peacetime environment, I assume, you know, doing the, you know, the partner force training and stuff like that. Yeah. Were you missing Vietnam? Were you missing combat? Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There was no adrenaline. Uh, and I have been accused of being an adrenaline junkie. Uh, they, uh, that, uh, but it was a good assignment and my wife and kids were with me and it gave me a time to get uh, acquainted with them. I can't say reacquainted because I wasn't acquainted with them very much with uh, the life I'd been living. Um, but, uh, but 
uh, spent four years there and uh, then came back to the States and did, uh, did, did basically just did whatever uh, to pass my time. And then Blue Light came along. Uh, so they, oh, and I went back to language school for Spanish. Uh, thought I was going to be headed down to, down to uh, what was then the eighth but uh, they uh, instead uh, blue light uh, wanted somebody who was uh, who knew languages and who had uh, some skills in swimming uh, and I was a master diver by that point and halo qualified so uh, so uh, they formed up a section a little known section of it that was uh, the maritime side uh, you know, everybody was worried about airplanes back then because of the hijackings. Uh, so that was basically what uh, everybody was uh, was thinking about: how to get on board an airplane, how do I go into an apartment building, how do I do this, how do I do that? Uh, but nobody had paid much attention to maritime, and those ships uh, that were rolling out of those, uh, those those cruise ships, I mean, they would bring your trunk on board for you uh there was no inspection or anything you could have had a if a company of bad guys on one of those things and then once you uh once you're out there and you've taken it over how do you take it back right uh and it's not the easiest thing in the world and that was what we were doing trying to figure out exactly how we could react to things like that so uh, before we get into the, the maritime branch specifically, could you talk a little bit about what Blue Light is or, or what it was and what 7778? Like, there is a lot of misinformation out there about what Blue Light was and what it did. Yeah, it, it was a reaction to the, the terrorist threat. I mean, it, the, it had started with the blowing up of the airliners there in, uh, in Jordan uh, and the, the killing of passengers and then, of course, uh, the, the, the example of the Germans uh, who had uh, mounted a very successful operation, uh, the Israelis who had mounted uh, a very successful operation. And we knew it was going to happen in the United States sooner or later. So SF is not, was not in those years direct action. Uh, it was, uh, we, we weren't, as I said earlier, we weren't commandos. Uh, we could be commandos, but we weren't, uh, we weren't commandos. So we had to start up something that would, that would help get the skills that we needed to go into a building, to go into, uh, go into an airplane. And that was long before uh, Delta was even a gleam in Charlie Beckwith's eye. So the uh, certain teams would uh, would uh, give them uh, give them training, and a lot of it was basic stuff. You know, we weren't pistol arrows. Uh, our 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 wars had been with rifles, uh, so it it was going back to school on that. I was lucky enough that uh, that I knew uh, one of the finest pistol shots in the world. Uh, came right out of Oklahoma City, Jelly Bryce. And he took me under his wing and gave me a few, gave me a few pointers. And uh, I went back and started teaching, teaching the guys uh, on, you know, instinctive shoot. And again, instinctive shooting, 
uh, but with a pistol this time and worked out pretty well. So, but I mean, it was all from the startup. It was, uh, it was like fighting a new war. And then and of course you had all kinds of people who were saying, we don't need that. The FBI is going to do that. They have the HRT, blah, blah, blah. And, and Blue Light was staffed up with like some special forces legends as well. I mean, like all of you guys, except maybe the officers were Vietnam veterans, like Suntay Raiders, Mike Force guys, dudes like you who had been MACV SOG and Phoenix program. Like, like, could you tell the, you know, people a little bit about who these guys were? Yeah, they, and they were, you're right. Uh, it was very selective screening. Uh, first off, you had to want to do it uh, and weren't retired in place as so many of our people were by then. They were just burnt out. Mm -hmm. uh, and people who were, uh, dare I say, patriots who mm -hmm. knew that there was a threat and they, it had to be dealt with and who else? Um, so they, uh, so yeah, we got, to, we got to pick and choose some really good guys. And it's a goddamn shame what happened uh, later on with uh, with Delta, that bullshit about, oh, you'll have to go through selection to be in Delta. Right. Were, were, <laughs> yeah. were you at that? Were you at that recruiting meeting? I with was Becky? not at that meeting. No. Okay. There's a yeah. No. I, I I heard that story from many people actually. Um. So Blue Light was out at Mott Lake on Fort Bragg. Um. Yeah. That's where they were doing all their training. But what you laid on me that I didn't know was that there's this this attached maritime branch. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I literally, I'm learning here as we're talking, what was that? What were you trying to accomplish with it? Uh, just, that was mostly uh, planning, uh, trying to figure out, as I said earlier, uh, how do you get on board a moving ship? Uh, you get people saying, oh, you could halo on. Have you ever looked at the top of a ship uh, with all the antennas and every damn thing that's uh, that's uh, sticking up in the sky, and, and it's that moving. ship is moving. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah you're going to go on there on a halo jump? I don't think so. Uh, and climb the sides of it? No, you're not going to climb the sides of it. Whether it's moving or not, you're not going to climb the sides of it. Uh, not if anybody's on board there that has any sense at all. They'd shoot you off those ropes uh, before you could get six feet up. Uh, so there were there were a lot of considerations in that. But but John, don't we have this whole other unit called Navy SEALs that are supposed to specialize in SEALs this? Like weren't doing SEALs weren't doing much in those days. Uh, they had cut back on them as well, uh, hmm. and they were. Uh, I mean, it it sort of became a division of missions. The SEALs were doing a lot in the Philippines and uh, in Near East Asia. Uh, they, uh, so it, uh, until, uh, until <laughs> the, the, they formed up SEAL, tech, SEAL Team 6, they really didn't, uh, they didn't do much of that. Their mission was to go in uh, on land, uh, you know, sea, air, land. Uh, they were to come in from the sea, go to land, hit a target, come back out. Uh, as far as uh, ships, they had never even thought about ships. And uh, I mean, were you, was this, this was purely planning or were you trying to like develop the tactics, develop the tactics? Oh, we were, the we were developing the tactics. And out, out one of the good things lake? about it, we got a lot of free rides on cruise ships.
John, how did you find out about Blue Light and at what point did you become, in its formation, did you become involved? Uh, in, in that, I was recruited for it. Recruited uh, and right when it was forming up? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then for, you know, a, for a Oklahoma farm boy that uh, learned from swimming a swimming a stock pond, uh, I ended up being a being a water baby. <laughs> <laughs> and then it, it, so blue light gets stood down what in the latter part of '78, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. It went and, and to SOT. You, you and the, you were one of the guys that was retained in in. Um, stayed at Mott Lake for special operations training or at the SOT course. Yeah. Yeah. And we, uh, we took a lot of them down. Uh, by that time I was almost a full-time instructor down at Key West. So we'd bring them down there and uh, we'd put them through some exercises uh, and uh, just, uh, and again, trying to figure out how to do this stuff. Well, basically doing, uh, the only thing, the only thing we ever came up with and ship would have had to have been stopped at dead stop, which isn't that hard to do, stop one, uh, is to go up through the garbage chute. Really? Mm hmm Like with a grappling hook or something? Like no. How no, with, uh, they had these ungodly sticky pads that they would, that would adhere, adhere to anything. I don't know what they were made of. Really? But, uh, but you could, you could actually climb with, you had them on your feet, on the insides of your feet. You, you, and you couldn't put your toes out. It was the insides of your feet. You'd slap them up against it and go there and then slowly move up that garbage chute. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Nasty too. <laughs> they threw all kinds of shit down there. Literally <laughs> through those things. <laughs> so i found when somebody somebody mouthed off at me that was the mission i gave him <laughs> going up the shoot? yep go up the shoes so what how long then was how long did you spend in blue light before it before it went away two years altogether two years altogether yeah and how did you how did you feel about that? I mean, were you tempted to go on to Delta or were you just pissed at them? Charlie Beckwith and I never got along. Um, they, I had uh, uh, there towards the end of my second tour, I thought, well, I'll volunteer for Delta down there and uh, go uh, go do go do some recon. And you're, you're talking about project his, Project Delta in Vietnam. Project Delta, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I walked into his office and he uh, he just started berating the hell out of me for no apparent reason. And so I turned around and walked back out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he really had that effect on people. I mean, uh, and, and so many people I've spoken to, you know, over the years that, you know, they say, you know, he was a good person. He was patriotic um, and, and he was smart in the sense that he knew we he needed was, a counterterrorism capability, but he yeah. rubbed so many people the wrong way, like yourself and so many others. Um, that recruitment briefing where they brought all the blue light people in that we had talked about, uh, mm -hmm. like he, he was just really flippant and kind of disrespectful to all of them. And yeah, again, yeah. rubbed them the wrong way. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I, uh, Joe Semino was a good friend of mine. Uh, Joe was not Joe Semino. Uh, I was another friend. 
oh shit, I'll think of his name in a minute. In any case, he was uh, he was a light colonel at that time, uh, and he and he and Beckwith would have at it all the time. Uh, <laughs> so after Blue Light gets shut down, um, and you went over and did SOT, and then I. Uh, you ended up getting deployed down to Central and South America? No, um, I was getting close to retirement by that time mm -hmm. when I wanted to retire. I had no intention of staying past, much past 20, but I wanted to, uh, wanted to get my family someplace where I could get them settled in because I knew I wasn't gonna be just sitting around. Uh, so I, uh, I asked for and got an assignment as an ROTC advisor in uh, Wichita Falls, Texas. Mm -hmm. I moved the family there and got everything settled in and uh, then uh, took my retirement and went off for three years to Saudi Arabia. I, I mean, wait, how, how did you end up from Texas to Saudi Arabia? Um, Vanell Corporation had a, had a contract with the Saudi government to uh, train the basically their national guard, uh, so uh, they we had a lot of a lot of different skills there, but uh, SF was in high demand, so uh, the pay was decent, and uh, <laughs> I didn't couldn't find anybody in uh, the civilian world that wanted to hire me. Uh, my peculiar skills didn't uh, didn't exactly uh, <laughs> do do. A corporate executive <laughs> too much so uh took the job went there and uh got financially straight and then uh decided uh okay i'm gonna give the corporate america another try give them another chance so i went back to school got an mba and uh, found out pretty quickly that corporate corporate america still didn't have a lot of use for my skills so I uh, taught for Oklahoma University for a while uh, and then uh, saw, saw a, uh, an advertisement on a bulletin board uh, and it talked about a job with the Department of State. And uh, it was so, and it was, I looked through the requirements there and I said, man, this is a job for me. You know, weapons, uh, ability, explosives, so forth and so on. So I, uh, I got recruited for the, uh, uh, the, internet, the State Department's Anti-Terrorism Assistance Program. ATF. Yep. And uh, we were doing a lot of maritime, a lot of, not a maritime, a lot of, uh, lot of aviation work at that point, uh, doing a lot of training. I was also uh, instructor in uh, in their render safe IED render safe program. Uh, so we trained people from 83 different countries uh, in oh, that. Wow. Uh, and it was uh, built up a lot of contacts uh, that I used successfully much later on. Then uh, decided uh, I don't like working for the government. Too many regulations. So I went up to DC and uh, became became a a gun for hire. Uh, <laughs> I joke about that, but most of it was uh, fairly mundane stuff. 
uh, Treasury had me escort a, a one of their Treasury officials down to uh, the Turks and Caicos. He was uh, doing a doing a uh, an analysis on money laundering, and uh, so I was his bodyguard. Uh, and uh, yeah, went to a lot of other places uh, and had uh, it, it worked out well for, for a few years. And then uh, I decided to become an entrepreneur. Now, I had uh, at that point, you know, all over the years it had festered in my mind. We're not training right. Uh, we're not training realistically. Uh, in particular in CQB uh, because of the constraints that you have with firing live ammunition inside a building uh, of any kind. Uh, and of course, Delta built that $7 million monstrosity there at Fort Bragg, uh, so small it was like having a shootout in your closet uh, and they burn it down twice. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> So I thought, okay, the problem here is that the round will ricochet. And if you're in a hard surface, it's gonna bounce around until it hits something soft, maybe your partner. Uh, the, also, the, uh, it, it, is, uh, it is not only, not only ricochet, but it will overpenetrate if you're in, say, a building where you don't have thick walls. Mm -hmm. So if thought, if, you know, if you, you know, when we started the, the whole thing up with, uh, with blue light, we were doing everything in the world to try to figure out training, how to do training. And we built Michelin cities. We built uh, railroad tie houses in Saudi Arabia. I built an entire village out of target cloth and two by fours, killed a couple of camels that way. Um, but uh, so I thought, you know, if we can't change the training facilities, why can't we change the bullet? So I decided I wanted to make a bullet that would not ricochet under any circumstances whatsoever, that would not splash back when you shot at something that was, uh, was hard uh, and you wouldn't be wearing those pieces of copper in your face like we all did at one time or another. It would still do the fit and function of the weapon uh, still give you adequate accuracy, still uh, have basically the same felt recoil and figuring it would take me six months and twenty, thirty thousand dollars less R&D money. Uh, and uh, six years later, I had a product. So I had taken quite a few jobs in between to finance it, uh, but uh, I had got it patented uh, and it was called uh, non-toxic frangible ammunition. Uh, they're using the hell out of it now. But like all entrepreneurs, I was about 20 years ahead of my time and woefully underfunded. Yeah. So 9-11 came along and uh, I get a call said, you got to come back to work. By that time, I was uh, on the ropes as far as the company. So somebody else uh, licensed it and I went traipsing off across uh, the stands again. And then uh, a company out of Switzerland bought that company, and uh, they brought the guy had who had who had uh, bought the rights uh, was uh, one of those guys who was oldest, the smartest guy in the room. So he had made improvements on it since then. <laughs> it was disastrous. So they brought me back on board to uh, to take care to get it back 
online. And then I found out I was a pretty good salesman. So I uh, did a lot of work with police departments uh, throughout the United States on, uh, on uh, doing training and uh, using frangible ammunition. So John, when I, when I was still in the army and uh, occasionally you would get the flangible ammunition like the silver tipped bullets mm -hmm. in the shoot house, was, was that from you? No, no, mine, uh, mine had no coating on it at all. Uh, to me, if you, uh, if it's a, there's a coating on it, it ain't frangible anymore. Uh, it is, uh, that coating is gonna come off and it, it's never the lead that gets you when you're shooting up close, it's that damn jacket. So uh, they tried all sorts of stuff uh, and there were various companies that were doing it. And, and it was a hard road to hoe to, because it was so totally different. But it's very successful now, of course, I don't get a penny out of it, but that's a uh, cert yeah. certain amount of pride in it. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, so you, you talked about aviation security getting into flangible ammunition. The other thing I noticed that I wanted to ask you about was that you did judicial protection down in Columbia. Yeah, that was when I was up in my DC days. Mm -hmm. um, they had uh, the, the uh, yeah, of course, another one of those acronyms, it's a TAP, the International Criminal Investigative Training and Assistance Program uh, is run by the Justice Department. And uh, the guy who was running the program had been in SOG and we knew each other. So, and he knew I spoke Spanish. So he asked me to put a team. It was shortly after Golan was killed, the presidential candidate down there assassinated. Uh, and they were killing judges on a rate of about one yeah. a week. It was, so, it was Escobar and his boys, the Medellin cartel, Escobar right? and his crew, yep. Yeah. And there's your, your visa photo from going down to Colombia that you had sent me. Yep. So I put a team together and uh, we uh, recruited about half guys, half of the team was SF guys and half was uh, former Secret Service guys. And that part of it was the biggest mistake I made. Uh, their idea of, uh, of a judge going somewhere was a six car motorcade. Well, these judges were riding buses to work. Uh, the, there was no such thing as these immense protective details. So we had some headbutting going on over that. So they wanted, but, uh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. So they wanted to do really high profile moves where you guys wanted to do low vis moves. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's exactly how we protected ourselves. Uh, the, when we first got down there, the, the embassy gave us a, one of their armored pigs. Uh, now, Columbia, you're already 6,000 feet above sea level, and it was still carburetors in those years. That thing had a top speed of about 20 miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, screw that. So we took taxis. Uh, we looked just like everybody else taking a taxi. Everybody took a separate taxi, and we'd go to wherever we were going to work that day and uh, never had a problem with it. Now, staying in a hotel was a different story. Uh, we got to where nobody had rent us a hotel room in, in Bogota. <laughs> they kept blowing them up. <laughs> oh, the, the people trying to kill the judges were? Yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, 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 thought, uh, I, thought, I thought you were leading into 
SF and the Secret Service guys partying too hard in 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 hotels. <laughs> not not that not that the crime scene. If, if I'd have had a few if I'd have had a few drinks with those guys, there'd have been some jaws loosened. Yeah. Yeah, we did not get along. And so then how did you come into the entertainment industry? Like you, you did some script writing, you you know, you served as a, a as the um uh, obviously as an advisor, a technical advisor, but not more than that, you were also the, the feature, the protagonist of a video game series. Like how, how did all of that happen? One second, <laughs> before we move into all that, uh, let's get some questions because we've actually gone a while without getting Okay, that. okay. So let sure. me get some questions because I because this is really interesting, uh, this next uh, the video game stuff. Um, Alex, thank you very much. Um, and sorry guys that it took us so long to get to your questions. I, I wasn't tracking the time. Um, what is MACV, SOG, and LARP for the unintended? I hope I got the acronyms right. Any interesting yeah, we, encounters with Air Grant or Maritime Branch? And I think, go ahead, please. Uh, so what is MACV, SOG, and LARP? Well, we, all, we already talked about what MACV, yeah. SOG is, but and now, maybe yeah, the second then, part. Uh, any interesting encounters with Air Ground or Maritime Branch? And... Never heard of him. He's talking about the the um, I believe the the CIA's uh, branches, but you already mentioned um, Air America that when you were first in in Vietnam that it was them and uh, that it was Air America, which was the predecessor to uh, CIA. So, what was your experience with like Air America when you were there? Oh, Air America was the one who ferried us around everywhere. Um, they weren't fighters. Uh, they, uh, they flew old DC-3s uh, and some smaller stuff, but, uh, but they weren't armed. Uh, they, uh, they, they were logistics people, uh, good guys. I mean, yeah. most of them were World War II vets. Uh, and they had, a lot of them had flown over the hump uh, into, into China uh, to delivering supplies back during World War II uh hard partiers uh that's for sure you go to go to one of their one of their clubs and if you walked out sober they felt like they, they'd been insulted yeah uh but uh but no they they weren't uh, they weren't actively doing anything no most of the air that we depend on in, in the first uh was vietnamese air they oh, had really? uh helicopters they had fighters oh really okay um, and with Air America, did you, uh, were they, they were just basically faring you, how were their pilots uh, in your opinion? I mean, oh, they're a great pilot. Uh, they, they definitely knew their business and they'd crank stuff out of that old DC three that, uh, old Goonie bird that, uh, you wouldn't believe that, that, that thing would do possible. Another, another story about, uh, the DC three though, I was down in, uh, down in, uh, 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 anyway, uh, I'll say that one for another day. <laughs> um, Andrew, thank you. Does John have any thoughts on uh, John Paul Van? John Paul Van never really um, knew him. Um, I, he had a great reputation. Uh, he had done marvelous work in Malaya uh, with uh, with the, with the fight there, but uh, and. 
I think that he, that he had uh, he was more along the lines of what we were talking about earlier. Leave it to leave it to the specialists. Uh, not don't bring those ungodly long logistic tail divisions in here. Uh, Dill, thank you very much for the donation. Um, let's see here. Gordon, thank you. John, get up to the shenanigans with the Aussies and the various programs they were involved with. <laughs> uh, the SAS are some of my favorite people. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they had their own detachment down uh, not too far from uh, where we were based out of uh, there on the third tour. And uh, we'd go and visit them every once in a while. And it was another one of those things. If you left sober, uh, you know, they, they figured that you'd insulted their hospitality. But uh, the damn fine soldiers uh, never had a complaint. Uh, I never fought alongside them. But uh, all the stories that I've heard, I know that they were extremely good. And the Kiwis, uh, they, were, they were good as well. Very good. Uh, we had... Uh, we had a, had a couple of them, a couple of the Kiwis out at our camp, and uh, we, uh, the, one of them was a Maori, and he uh, was a huge guy, uh, uh, and he said, said you've got a standing imitation. Anytime you come to New Zealand, you come there, and we'll go up in the mountains and drink piss and dance the haka. <laughs> Did you ever take him up on it? No, I never got the chance. Yeah. We will in uh, September. We're going to have a special forces veteran on Vietnam veteran who worked with the Aussies in uh, Da Nang. Ah, so we'll talk about that yeah. then. Good. Um, yeah, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't get a lot of credit. And one of the best best war movies I've ever seen is The Odd Angry Shot, which yeah. was Australian. Yeah. Uh, Silcock Family Office, thank you very much for the donation. It's tragically funny how everything changes, yet nothing changes. Uh, and I think I think this came when you were talking about like the restrictions and prohibitions on the war and 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 how hard it was for you to fight and, and the stuff with the Phoenix Project. Uh, what is John's assessment of the future of special operations and special activities? And then he says in Latin, "In orbe uh, terum non visi." I think that's how you said it. I think, frankly, it's gotten too big. Um, it uh, it is uh, it it is becoming the be all end all. Uh, and when you do that, uh, you get monoliths that don't move very fast. And that was always one of the things that we did. We, we adapted. It was very much uh, you run into a situation. Uh, you, there are no rules dealing with it. You better be able to think on your feet. And I think that we've gotten away from a lot of that. I think we've gotten a lot of, away from a lot of uh because and and i understand the impulse to protect the soldier but when i look at one of these guys with all the battle rattle on uh, and yep. he is carrying 60 70 pounds before you even start talking about the rucksack he can't maneuver uh he, he he's a person who takes a position and basically stays there if he falls over on his back he's going to be like a turtle my my body armor was my fatigue shirt and there were times when i wanted to cut the buttons off of that <laughs> i took uh, in fact when they first brought in the 30 round magazines i wouldn't use them and that put me an inch further above the ground was it back in your day john i mean 
uh, they weren't even called ODAs yet. They were called A teams. And an A team was 12 guys. And correct me if I'm wrong, you had your rucksacks and maybe your entire team's gear fat on, uh, fit on one pallet, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And if we didn't, if we needed something, we didn't, uh, we didn't have people falling all over ourselves. We were at the ass end of the ass end of the supply line. We were the stepchildren. Uh, uh, so when we needed something, we stole it. <laughs> <laughs> John, when, what was your impression like? Did you notice the public opinion and political landscape changing as you, you spent from 63 to 70 there? Were you, I mean, were you aware of that? How, what did you feel about oh, yeah. it? Yeah, very much aware. I mean, we got stars and stripes. Uh, I mean, yeah, they tried to play things down, but it wasn't hard to see. Uh, and of course, I still had my trips back to the States and it was, it was obvious that the tide was changing amongst the American people. It, 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 did, that did that affect how you felt about it? Did that affect how you felt about Americans, or, or not, not America, but about the local, you know, the general population? Like, how did you take all that on board? It, 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 didn't, it didn't really affect how I felt, felt about the general population because I knew that there, there were a lot of mouthpieces out there, but the general population uh, it was still bedrock folks. Uh, they weren't, uh, you know, uh, all those murdering bastards and so forth and so on. Uh, it was, uh, so no, I didn't, I didn't feel bad about that. And as far as, uh, as, far as the, the war went, uh, I wanted to win it. Yeah. And then what about the Phoenix variant? Has it bothered you? I mean, did it bother you when it was misrepresented the way it was? Uh, um, I considered the sources, uh, the usual, the usual liars. Uh, and just like we have now, yeah. you know, they take, they take anything and blow it out of proportion or flat ass lie about it. Interesting. I saw Ian jumped in here. He, he wants to know your best Larry Thorne story. My best Larry Thorne uh, story. I didn't know him well. You know, I was a very junior officer. He was uh, he was a, he was a field grade by then. Uh, all I know is anecdotal, and uh, I know that he was uh, he was a character. He loved to like like all fans. Uh, he loved his drink, uh, and he he loved to fight. <laughs> so, if uh, back to Jack's question then about getting into entertainment and the video game, right? Yeah. Yeah, I had uh, I had written another book, which uh, a producer out in Hollywood got interested in. It thought about making a movie out of it called Tracker and the Iceman. I'll uh, I'll put it on online here before too long. But um, he uh, and the movie never panned out, as so many of those things do in in La La Land out there. Um, but he called me up. Um, and told me that uh, they had bought the rights to the Soldier of Fortune logo and that they, uh, they were going to make a video game out of it. 
uh, or no, a television show. Uh, first, it was a television show and wanted to know uh, if I wanted to write a couple of scripts. And yeah, sure, I'll write a couple of scripts. And I wrote them and they, uh, they got, uh, they, they got, uh, got on the screen and I felt pretty good about that. Felt even better about the money and the, uh, then the residuals. You're, you're talking about the, so, the soldier of fortune television show back in the like yeah. mid 1990s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, that they, um, it was, um, I tried to make it as realistic as possible, but it was Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were doing silly shit that uh, that people don't do, and then they, for the second season, because the ratings were suffering, they brought in that uh, basketball player. I remember. Oh, I, I yeah. distinctly remember. <laughs> yeah, it uh, it destroyed the series. Uh, yeah. So it was canceled. But then uh, then Neil, the producer, uh, had. Uh, been talking to the people at Activision about a video game and they thought yeah we'll do a video game on that so they wanted an advisor and Neil asked me if I was gonna if I would do that and I asked well are they gonna pay me and he said yes and I said well you have your answer then (laughs) so uh, off I fly to Madison Wisconsin and uh, get with uh, Raven Uh, there's a development company and I walk into this place and there's this long hallway almost, uh, no cubicle. The cubicles in it were all just uh, individual cubicles. And you look in there and these fresh faced young people are there doing magic on their, their computers. The trash cans are full of empty Twinkie Raptors and Mountain Dew cans. And every Star Wars figure that it was ever brought out lines the walls. <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? But, uh, but I did, uh, did the consulting, tried to talk them into making it a bit more realistic. But of course, they're, they know everything too. You know, the idea of, uh, of not looking through your sights uh, is not... Right exactly the way it should be done but they paid me and uh, so I went on back home and a little while later I get a call from them up there and they said uh, we need a name and a background for our main character uh, would you consent to that and I said are you going to pay me <laughs> and they said yes <laughs> so I became uh, I became the the soldier of fortune Immortalized. So, yeah, there's two uh, two two iterations of it. I wrote a large part of the second one. Really? Oh, did you? Yeah. The uh, I remember, you know, because I w- when the game came out, I was probably like 15 or 16 years old at the time, and I ran out and bought it. And I remember like the load screen when you're loading up the game, and it shows pictures of you, John. There's like pictures of you in Vietnam and places like this showing up and talking about your career and stuff. And, you know, I'm a teenager, like, I want to be just like this dude. I want to do exactly what this, I want to be John Mullins. And, you know, of course that's, you know, I ended up in Ranger Battalion and then SF after that for a while. And so, yeah, you had, you had an impact on my impressionable young mind. Well, I'm glad of that because I've been told so many times you are contributing to the violence of young people. No, I don't believe that. No, it's nonsense. And, and, I, and I hope this interview, you know, with, you know, multi-generational between uh, you, I, and Dave, 
you know, that the young people see this and they also consider, hey, maybe making a contribution to the US military. I wish they would, yeah. Yeah, you're talking about the attitude of, uh, of the people in the United States during the war. I have a wonderful story uh, about that. Uh, there, we had this Navajo Indian SF guy who stood about six foot seven inches tall. Uh, and he, uh, he was on a, on a, at, at an airport and was getting harassed by somebody uh, who talking about oh, 101 ways to kill a guy, 101 Peace ways, creeps. oh, you're so full of shit. So, so Silverleaf <laughs> unfolds from that chair, towers over the guy and says, pick a number. What <laughs> <laughs> was his name, Silverleaf, or was it Silverthorn? No, Silverleaf. Silverleaf, because, because Jim Morris wrote a novel called Silverthorn. And I'm just thinking yeah. it might be it's the same guy. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, oh, we have a couple more questions, real quick. Um, uh, thank you, Andrew. Uh, did you have any interactions with the regular army? I mean, you talked about uh, with the 101st, which indicated how the um, oh, which indicated how the regular army was degrading over the course of the war. Did you see a big change between 63 and 70? Uh, no. I didn't. Um, the, I mean, the guys were were getting shot out by then. I mean, uh, getting multiple tours and that kind of thing, which is never good being being away from the family unless you are a warrior. Um, so there was that problem, but they suffered the same problem in World War Two and World War One and Korea and everything else. I mean, war is tough business. Yeah. And more so for the conventional side because they they they, they have less choice. I think they have far less choice and more bad decisions get made. Yeah, at levels so far above that. Oh so, yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, thank you, Max. Uh, why is Tiger Stripe so sexy? <laughs> <laughs> That's what we had for camouflage. <laughs> wasn't worried about the sex, you know, out there with an M16 and, uh, you know, a whole bunch of ammo. You weren't exactly looking for love. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you again, Andrew. Uh, given John's experience with Dennis Rodman, will he be the one to finally end the Korean War? <laughs> I rather doubt that. <laughs> He's talking about this, the second season of the uh, Soldier of Fortune television show where they brought Dennis Rodman on. And that was, it was a sharp decline from season one to season two. Yeah, it went, it went silly at that point. Oh, John, this has uh, really been incredible. And uh, I hope we can do it again sometime. And I, I really encourage people to go and check out your novels, uh, the the Men of Valor novels, and the the second one is the Apache yeah, Apache County, County novels. Um, and I, I posted a link there uh, in the in the chat for people who want to go check it out. Um, you can if also, it's if it's okay, I, I'd like to ask you to stay after we finish for like just 10, 15 minutes to do the bonus segment, um, if that's cool with you. Um, uh, Dave, do you have something? 
Well, as I was going to say, you can still download, uh, you can still get Soldier Fortune too. Um, yeah. For like okay. 10 bucks. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and if you want to see like one of the original, like, I mean, you blow up people's limbs and it's just a fun game. It's just, uh, it, it was super it fun. Yeah. 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 You get that shotgun and you're, you're a, a god amongst mortals. Uh, and, uh, but uh, yeah, check it out. If you have a laptop or whatever, uh, it's, it's fun. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Um, but it, thank you, everybody. First off, thank you, John. Uh, yeah, I mean, very much. We, you know, I've enjoyed it, it. it's funny because you are in so many different things that are, are mythical at this point for people in our community and people right. on the community that look into it. And here, here we've talked for two hours and any one of those topics could be its own two hour yeah. talk. I mean, you know, I mean, the Phoenix program is, I could spend hours asking questions about that. So I did. And, um, in the second, uh, the second novel of the trilogy, The Man of Men of Valerie, it deals with uh, with the Phoenix program uh, to a great extent. So yeah. And, a, and John, do you have any future projects on the horizon, uh, whether they're novels or some, or other other <laughs> media? Is there anything you're working on right now that you know? I've got one that I just with? finished that is going to piss people off in high places. <laughs> Let's hear it. What, what's it about? It deals it deals with the MIA and the secret attorney program. In, in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Is this fiction or nonfiction? It's fiction. I oh, could only fiction? write it as fiction. I have a book here. Where in God's name did I put it? I have this book sitting around. Here it is. I've been reading this and I want to try to get the guy who the author died. I don't know if you've read this one, Abandoned in Place. No, I haven't read that one. The author is Lynn M. O'Shea, and I read that she passed away, unfortunately. But the forward is written by the JSOC S2, Colonel Danny Gordon. And it's about, and I think it was, what year was it? It, must, it was early 1980s, JSOC uh, planned operation to go and rescue MIAs in Vietnam. That never mm -hmm. happened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Bo Greit screwed it up. Yes, right. Yeah. And, and and so this is a novel that you've written that you're gonna publish soon. Yeah. All right. When when it when it's fixing to come out, let me know. And I'd like to have you on the show again to talk about that specific subject. Do you, I will do, that. do you have a release date in mind yet? John, do you have a publication date in mind yet? Did I have a what? I'm sorry. Do you have a publication date in mind yet? Oh, uh, no, I'm looking for an agent right now. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. you stay, yeah, you stay in touch. You, you, you have my email. You let me know. And uh, we'll, we'll discuss when, uh, when it's on its way out. Um, other than that, I think, uh, unless you have anything, or John, you have anything you want to add before we wrap up and we'll go into the bonus segment afterwards. Um, Anything I, I failed yeah, to uh, mention? I, I don't want to keep you too long. I just want to ask you one quick question. Given your experience over eight years uh, in Vietnam, when you saw us going into Afghanistan, when you saw the U.S. going into Iraq, what were your thoughts on that? Did you, did you think it would be quick 
did you think that it would become what it is, you know, almost another Vietnam in, in some ways? What were your thoughts and did they evolve over time? Well, it's always easy to be a, a Monday morning quarterback, sure. but the first thing was that Iraq wasn't our enemy. Uh, and Iraq was the enemy of Iran, our true enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Saddam Hussein was an idiot and his sons were even worse. But the idea that they were going to, that they were going to pose an existential threat to us was nonsense. Uh, it should never have happened. Uh, it was based on false intelligence. And then we compounded the, pro the problem uh, with J. Arthur Bremer, who I had my run-in with too, uh, who decided that he would disband the entire Iraqi army. Now you got guys who have no means of support, no money, no food. Mm -hmm. uh, they're ripe for recruitment by anybody that, mm -hmm. that want them. That's where the war started, that babbling idiot. Uh, and if you're listening, <laughs> come find me. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, uh, please uh, remember to give this video the thumbs up on YouTube, share it, like it. Leave us a comment. It all helps us bump up in the algorithms and uh, and gets noticed and gets uh, some visibility for John and for his work as well. Yeah. And uh, there's also a link for our Patreon down in the description um, if you want to support the show financially and get access to the bonus segments that we film and with all of our guests. And uh, next week will be episode 50. Uh, I'm reading the author's book right now, The South African Police Special Task Force. Uh, the guy's name is Shane Wade Willard, and this guy did all kinds of wild hostage rescue operations down in, in South Africa, and uh, he's going to have some pretty wild stories to tell, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, John, again, thank you so much, uh, and uh, Dave, thank you as well, and I hope everyone enjoyed this episode, and uh, we'll see you guys next Friday. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you uh, supporting us and watching. Oh, you didn't mention the Patreon, did you? I did. Oh, you just did. Sorry. I was reading comments to make sure we didn't miss anything. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.